Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Crawford Gribben, and today my guests are Todd H. Weir and Hugh McLeod. Professor McLeod is one of the most distinguished religious historians here in the United Kingdom, uh, recently retired from the University of Birmingham, and Todd Weir is Professor of History of Christianity and Modern Culture at the University of Groningen. Uh, Todd and Hugh are here today to speak about their brand new publication, Defending the Faith, Global Histories of Apologetics and Politics in the 20th Century, just published in the very distinguished series, The Proceedings of the British Academy, and uh, distributed by Oxford University Press. Uh, Todd and Hugh, thanks for your time. It's great to see you and thanks for being with us today. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Hugh, can I begin with you and perhaps ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and your career, your interest, the publications um, that you've you've shared with us, and perhaps how you and Todd came to uh, work together on this project? Okay, yes. I've spent nearly all my working life at the University of Birmingham um, teaching various aspects of Modern Christian history, primarily the 19th and 20th century. I have done some more general social history, and I should emphasize that my background is very much in social history rather than in intellectual history or theology. I began by mainly working on questions to do with the relationship between religion and social class, particularly working class religion. Um, I then started looking at questions of secularization, Um, both in the 19th century and then in the um, 1960s. Um, At the moment, I'm looking at the historical relationship between religion and sport in England. So that's my, I hope, will be my next book. That sounds fun. Look forward to seeing that. And Todd, obviously, uh, you and I have been colleagues together in Belfast for a number of years. Tell us a little bit about your background and, again, your interests, your historical interests, publications, and how you came to work with you uh, on this book, Defending the Faith, Global Histories of Apologetics and Politics in the 20th Century. Yeah, thanks. Um, yes, I worked nine years at, at Queen's University Belfast, and that's how we know each other. And uh, we were also involved, I think, in a course on religion, conflict, and identity um, that we taught together. And... Uh, Essentially, my my research moved from an interest in secularism and socialism to uh, an interest in the interactions of religion and uh, secularism, broadly speaking. And and this is through this work is how I also got to know Hugh. I invited him to Queens to give a talk in 2008 on the anniversary of 1968, which is one of his uh, specializations. And, uh, you know, I was aware of Hugh's work in this general field, uh, and I've learned a lot from from reading his work over the years. So uh, when I was uh, working together with Benjamin Simon, who's a historian in Sheffield, on this British Academy project, 
the conference. Uh, I, I suggested that we bring Hugh in because he's such a, a well-known figure exactly in this field. Uh, so the, the conference kind of emerged out of the interest that the three of us had in 20th century politics and religion. Um, and we put in a proposal to the British Academy uh, and it was it was accepted. And then the book is the result. That's fantastic, Todd. And Hugh, uh, you're a fellow of the British Academy and the publication we're talking about today is issued in the very distinguished volume series Proceedings of the British Academy. Can you tell us something about what the British Academy is, what it represents, and also the significance of the proceedings that it issues each year? Yes, it's the, I suppose it's the main organisation of scholars in the humanities and social science in the UK. Um, the equivalent for those areas of the perhaps more universally known Royal Society, which was for people in the natural sciences. It's been around, I think, for more than a century. I think it was started possibly just after World War One. Um, it also attempts to act as an advocate body for humanities and social science lobbying government. Um, it awards various kinds of grants in aid of research, postdocs, um, research grants, um, grants to bring international scholars to the UK. Um, and it also runs um, a certain number of conferences every year, which is um, what um, what we took advantage of. Um, the proceedings, I don't know if they, they're often as a result of the, of the conferences, but I think not necessarily. Um, I think the one, the, the only one actually I can claim to have read myself apart from our own one was one on the fa with the fascinating title, Does Terrorism Work? Um, which I think was one of your colleagues at Queen's was responsible for, um, for, for writing that, um, but it publishes a, in a huge range of areas. It could be anything from ancient history to languages, literature, um, up to more contemporary history like ours. And these are often thought to be landmark volumes, aren't they, in the fields to which they contribute? When we come back to some of the very distinguishing features um, of this this book, Defending the Faith, uh, to think about how it might shape the field uh, as our conversation develops. But um, Todd, Hugh has just mentioned that the British Academy uh, supports conferences and you mentioned a moment or two before that the, the background to the book is in a conference. Could you tell us something more about the event and how the event came to be reflected in the volume we're talking about today? Sure. Well, uh, I had uh, been discussing with Benjamin Seaman uh, uh, an idea for a proposal. And uh, he said, uh, do you have any good ideas? And I said, well, I'm, I'm working on this idea of apologetics. How about that? Um, so, so that was our initial uh, starting point. And uh, the, the the conference is, of course, in this sumptuous setting, the British Academy in London. And uh, it's it's just a very, you know, for for scholars, it's a lovely opportunity to, to meet in a, in a gorgeous environment. Uh, spend two days in intensive work together, 
uh, and then and then part ways. So it was a nice uh, event, uh, really focused just on the papers. So we had pre-circulated papers, which which makes the uh, the exchange more uh, more fruitful than if people are just you know lecturing. Uh, and then the, after the, the conference, uh, uh, Hugh and I decided that we wanted to take up the challenge of putting together a volume. And then we uh, went about thinking what was missing from the contributions to the conference. So we decided we really wanted to do a global history of the 20th century, uh, looking at these conflicts uh, between religious groups and between religious groups and secular groups. So we, we were systematic about it, and we realized we didn't have enough on, on uh, Jewish history, so we invited Miri, um, I'm forgetting her name now. Oh, dear. Hugh, help me out. Uh, Freud Kandel. Yeah, Freud Kandel. So she joined us. Uh, we uh, realized that we uh, wanted more coverage globally, so we added some scholars uh, to make sure that we, we really had that coverage. Um, and, and that's essentially the... The, how the how the book came to be? Yeah, great. And Hugh, could could you tell us a little bit about the parameters of the project? Todd's just emphasized emphasized that it represents a global history of the twentieth century. Um, in the introduction, you both use the expression the short twentieth century, the period from what nineteen seventeen to nineteen eighty nine or, or or thereabouts. And in many ways, the short twentieth century um, is 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 framed around the rise and fall of the USSR. But the book has a much bigger interest in that than that, doesn't it? It's interested in um, communism and anti-communism, of course, as themes that crop up um, throughout the book. But how how capacious is this volume really? Well, I think our starting point perhaps is the feeling that this that the Bolshevik Revolution was the sort of seminal event, let's say, of the twentieth century. There's obviously lots of other very important things were happening together with the whole theme, for example, of colonization and decolonization is obviously a central theme. But I think in looking at that, you can't really get away from the issue of communism, the role of communists in nationalist movements, and indeed the fears which the imperial powers had of communist influence um, in, in their colonies and in their former colonies as, as they broke free from colonial control. But also if one looks at politics um, in Europe um, and indeed in the Americas, the threat of communism is a, an enormous boost, let's say, to more um, conservative forms of politics. Um, you know, I think particularly um, Todd and... Um, Benjamin Seaman showed in their studies of 1920s Germany and the rise of Hitler. Um, it's an absolutely crucial example, but other contributors to the book um, looked at what happened to the United States in the period after World War II and the absolute centrality of the Cold War and of anti-communism. I think we suggest that things begin to change a bit in the 1960s. The, the if you like, the polarizations. Um, between, you know, the so-called socialist world and the so-called free world is um, beginning to sort of become rather more blurred, that anti-communism isn't quite as virulent as it had been. And indeed, um, in the Western side, admiration for the United States was very much undermined by the Vietnam War. You get the rise of dialogue, not least 
in the wake of, of Vatican II, but the same, of course, is happening with the World Council of Churches. Um, so, and then, of course, in the 1980s, the beginnings of the sort of crumbling of the, of the USSR. Um, and the interesting question that um, the Christian churches are declining in most Western countries um, in the period from the late 60s onwards, just as they're reviving in in the Eastern Bloc countries, as um, Victoria Smolkin shows in her contribution. Um, with the fall of the Soviet Union, if you like, an essential factor, an essential ingredient is taken out of the mix and things can increasingly develop in new directions. But as long as the Soviet Union's around, wherever you are across the globe, you can't escape from that fact, whether you see it as an inspiration or as a threat. Um, and th th that's fascinating. Of course, that theme crops up in the chapter on Billy Graham, doesn't it? Uh, in, yes. in the way in which his preaching is so uh, vitally formed around anti-communist narratives in the 1950s, and how that gradually begins to, 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 to shift. Well, Todd, c can we ask you to reflect a little bit on the contribution the book makes to the study of secularisation? Uh, in some ways, it's trying to challenge uh, a lot of the assumptions we have about that process, isn't it? Um, certainly, certainly it is. Um, I think looking at the century, say from the beginning of the 20th century, rather than looking at it from the end, uh, one is aware that in the first half of the 20th century, um, there were such intense struggles between religious and secular actors um, that the, the whole issue of secularization wasn't the one that was foremost on people's mind when they were thinking about what is the relation of the religious and the secular. And there's a, there's a, I, Hugh won't know this, but there's a, a sentence in one of his books that I found very inspirational. And he said that the, the theory of secularization, um, or let's say the process of secularization, historically often looks much more like rival worldviews battling it out than an impersonal process of slow change. And, and I think that's right. And I, and I was certainly inspired by that uh, quotation because um, um, really there center stage often are these apologetic struggles uh, where actors are very conscious of what sets them apart. And they're arguing over very concrete, tangible rights and privileges, uh, political power and such things. Um, so it's not the case, as in classic secularization theories, that, you know, yeah, that religion is like a big iceberg that's just melting in the sun of science. You know, that's that's not uh, what we see very often. Uh, so that that really was a starting point for this whole project, that realization. And um, what the, with with apologetics, uh, what we were trying to do was to uh, say, you know, we have in the history of the Christian church, um, also in, in, a, in a Jewish uh, religion as well, this whole tradition of apologetics. And if you look at what church uh, thinkers have done over centuries with the concept of apologetics, they've really um, uh, worked out already for us uh, a number of processes of, of recognition of enemies, the study of enemies, uh, even learning from enemies, um, uh, engagement, mission, 
defense. I mean, these are all wrapped up in the concept of apology and apologetics. And so uh, what we were trying to do with the book was to say, well, uh, can we apply that whole approach, apologetics, not just to religious actors, but also to their enemies, say, in the communist camp? So is there something like an apologetics of communism, right? So we, we thought, okay, let's take the term and essentially neutralize it and try to turn it into a social scientific category that we can use to talk about uh, both sides of these culture wars, you know, or global struggles over religion. And, um, and the, the idea that sort of came to mind is, is uh, in my, the chapter I wrote that, that I, I found nice was if you accept that both the communists and the Christians in Weimar Germany are locked in this battle where they both sides really, in a sense, understand each other quite well. And they have uh, professionals who uh, study each other and they have professionals who missionize in the opposite camps and propagandize, and they have reporters and journalists and, and so on, um, that, uh, that it, it forms a kind of a theater of struggle, a kind of, you know, if you imagine a stage and, and the, uh, the apologetic actors are there, as Hugh said, right, the rival worldviews battling it out, um, th that it, it gives us a way, if we're trying to sort of focus our attention on, on a, a set of interactions, we can use this idea of apologetics to really, you know, encapsulate a, a small area of or large area of social engagement conflict where we have both religious and secular actors being religious and secular, being political and spiritual uh, in the same realm. And it, for me, it opened up a whole way of, uh, of getting over certain hindrances that are there conceptually, if we want to talk about politics and religion at the same time. And, and this also goes to your, your question about the secularization theory. Um, you know, people tend to, many people think that the secular is somehow taking over the religious and pushing it out constantly. But if you take this idea of apologetics, you, you can identify a, a very important place in the, in letters, in science, in polemics, where, where both religious and secular actors are battling each other, but in a sense, talking the same language, oddly, right? Uh, so that's, that's a, a bit of the, uh, yeah, the way we wanted to kind of rethink the secular religious dynamic. Yeah, I, I'm glad you drew your attention there to your own chapter, Todd, because uh, that description of Weimar Germany and uh, Benjamin Zeman's chapter on Martin Niemöller's apologetic crusade in the period just after, uh, I think are really fascinating examples of the existential crises that major world religions do seem to pass through at several several moments in the 20th century, when their very existence as explanatory frameworks is called into question. How, how, how do other essays in the volume develop this theme in, in other contexts? You posing that to me or to you or sorry yes um uh, to, 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 to to yourself Todd yeah um, so uh, it, it varies I mean because the these apologetic struggles and conversations um, can be in the form of dialogue they can be in the form of battle so many of the chapters deal more with the sort of dialogue uh, efforts at mutual understanding and uh, argumentation, convincing, 
Uh, I'm thinking of this chapter on the uh, Orthodox Jewish leader. Uh, and again, Louis you me there. what's his name? Louis Jacobs. Uh, yeah. So uh, in that case, it's uh, 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 Mary uh, Freud Kendall's uh, study of one person who's um, engaging in a kind of struggle both with secular thought, but also with more, even more Orthodox Jewish thought. Um, so that's a very kind of subtle apologetics. And then we have cases such as in Weimar, Germany, where it's a real kind of life and death struggle. Uh, we have the case of Morocco in the 1970s, where we have a communist leader who's really trying to uh, avoid uh, the kind of suggestion that communism leads to the nation religion because he's dealing with a very uh, pious Muslim population and he doesn't want to alienate the majority or the government. Uh, so, uh, you know, we're looking at, at many different scenarios. Um, some really are that kind of existential struggle, such as in the Soviet Union. But in many cases, it's the, the apologetic picture that emerges is is one of a multi-sided struggle. Mm. Um, Hugh, is, it was striking to me as I, I worked my way through the book that chapters seem to be arguing two, two cases. I wasn't always sure. Um, in my own mind, how, how how those might fit together, um, although it was obvious that both both were true. Um, one of these cases was that culture was pushing religious believers into the front line of political conflict, uh, which you mentioned earlier on mm-hmm. in, in one of your answers, but also that states and other political entities are being enlisted in the defence of faiths. And, and And so the chapters in the book seem to argue both that the story of the short 20th century might be a story of politically orientated religion and also perhaps a story of religiously orientated politics. Is, is that a good way of reading the book? Um, I think that's certainly true of a lot of the situations um, um, described. I mean, it's certainly an extreme case, perhaps is Weimar, Germany, uh, where... Um, uh, Religion is is totally politicized um, and, and totally caught up in, in the battle between the left and right in in Germany, um, though with um, a new realm of complexity when the Nazis come in and nobody's quite sure you know where they stand in all of this. Um, but 1950s, the United States has shown by. Um, Miller and Greenberg is another very good example of a, um, a state which has come to identify itself very much with its so-called Judeo-Christian heritage um, and figures like Billy Graham who see it as part of their remit to uh, provide support to this state. Um, you've also got more complicated places like the Moroccan one, um, where first of all the state is trying to suppress the um, communists, but then turns round and decides that they're not so bad after all. Um, though, ironically, not perhaps because the communists are so busy declaring their Islamic um, credentials, but because the political situation has changed and also the state is closer to them the Soviet Union than it had been. Of course, some of our um, some of our case studies didn't have a, an obvious political dimension, the most obvious being the um, Miri Freud Kandel's article on um, Jewish orthodoxy and the struggles within Jewish orthodoxy in the 60s. 
um, which is much more often um, related to questions of changes in society and how they're impacting on the Orthodox Jewish community and the political dimensions really absent. I think in the majority of cases, it's certainly central. Mm. Well, Todd, can I, can I ask you to reflect a little bit on some of the methodological claims that the book is making? Um, some of these you deal with in your own chapter, um, which includes thinking critically about the way in which scholars have separated out religion and politics into different categories. So how might the work in this book or the arguments that you or other contributors develop, how might those arguments challenge that bifurcation of politics and religion in future scholarly work in this area? Well, as I was saying before, I think that um, this idea of an apologetic stage um, is useful because if you look at arguments taking place between secular and religious actors or between political and religious actors, uh, if, if you notice that they're actually engaged in direct, uh, let's say, conversation through struggle, um, it, it becomes a very, if you trace then these interactions, it becomes a very kind of empirical way of combining, let's say, religious studies and political history. Uh, and that's something that if you do it from a too great of a distance, um, you can end up in, in ideas like political religion, for example. So some people look at communism and say, well, it's a religion because it has a great leader, uh, it has a utopia, and all of these aspects. Yeah, okay, that's fine. That's a, that's a theory. Um, but we don't have to stand off uh, that far and look at things in order to get at interactions between communism and religion. We can actually go to the ground uh, such as, you know, Victoria Smolkin did in her chapter, and just look at concretely the lives of the uh, communist apologists that are dealing with um, the question of religion in the 1950s and 1960s. And we find, for example, which she looks at, that there are converted uh, uh, monks. They're a favorite uh, uh, type of apologist for the Communist Party um, because they, they seem to be very effective in... Uh, in argumentation against uh, with believers and so on. So in a sense, uh, I would say if we're pioneering new methods, it is uh, ways of, of, of bringing together uh, religious and political history in ways that is often not done um, by really looking at these kind of empirical, um, you know, uh, facts on the ground um, in, in very concrete little theaters. So, for example, something I'm very interested in is the history of the idea of worldview. Um, it's, you know, as you'll know from looking at the United States, evangelicals, uh, it's a hugely important term for evangelicals in the United States. And, and I think it's no mistake that the evangelicals developed it largely in the apologetic context. Uh, if you, you know, people like James Orr, uh, Abraham Cowper, uh, the, the, um, the contemporary Francis Schaeffer, uh, they're all apologists and they're very keen on, um, uh, yeah, struggling with other, other figures in the world. And what do they struggle over? They all struggle over the term worldview. And in my chapter, I look at how in the, in the 1920s, um, both the communists, free thinkers, the, the free thinkers and the church leaders, were centrally concerned with the notion of worldview. And the Christian apologists uh, stated, the Protestants, for example, stated that 
the, the, the key to overcoming secularism was to forge a new Christian worldview. So that was the test for them, is, is whether or not they were going to succeed in forging a new Christian worldview. And for the communists, of course, it was the same issue. Uh, they also believed that their worldview was going to prevail because it was true, of course, because it was materialistic and scientific and so on. Um, so these, the, the, there's, um, I think, many aspects to this method. We can use it for intellectual history. Uh, you know, uh, we can look at kind of the trading of motifs from one apologetic context to another. So the chapter by Miller and Greenberg is very interesting because they look at post-war American Protestant liberals. And uh, they, they, they are very concerned with the threat of communism and they, uh, they want to characterize communism as a kind of aberrant faith. And where do they go for all their tropes, you know, to attack communism? Of course, well, not of course, but they go to their anti-Catholicism. So the Protestant struggle with Catholicism delivered them uh, a number of, of key tropes that they could then turn on communism, right? Fanaticism, uh, dogmatism. Mental slavery. Uh, yeah, yeah, so so I, that's that's for me, uh, you know, where I see a kind of methodological gain, let's say. Out yeah, of the book. fascinating, fascinating. Well, just as we wind up, Hugh and Todd, can I ask you to give us a sense of what you think we will gain in future work on 20th century Judaism, Christianity, Islam, atheism, communism, anti-communist movements and so on, if we put apologetics at the centre of these narratives what do you think we'll be able to see more clearly uh, as a consequence of, of having appreciated the really superlatively good work in this book? I think one thing I would say is going back to what Todd was saying near the beginning, um, that quite a lot of history and perhaps even more, quite a lot of sociology has, tend, has tended to see um, most often religious um, bodies as, if you like, helpless victims of secularization. Um, uh, there's impersonal processes which are moving all in one direction and there's nothing much that one can do about it. And having a lot of uh, my recent work, having been in the 1960s, I can see this kind of narrative very clearly in some uh, histories of the 60s. I would say that these studies suggest that what we're talking about is people who, far from being passive victims of what's going on, we're trying to understand it, interpret it, and work out practical strategies for combating what they thought was wrong while being willing to work with what new trends they thought were right. And I think this gives us a like a more... Um, certainly a more productive as well as a more sympathetic <laughs> perspective in, in order to try and understand how the people in these situations experience them. If I could just add, I, I think, um, you know, one thing that, that Hugh insisted on in our introduction was the notion of, of competition, uh, religious competition. Um, and and I, I think that's very useful because I, I was very focused on the secular religious uh, contradiction um, but but I, I think some of the chapters really show that these competitions take place with multiple actors. So you have, uh, for instance, the, in the chapter on um, Orthodox Christians in South India, um, you have, you know, Hindu nationalism 
communism, uh, thing, aspects of global Christianity coming through the, the World Council of Churches, um, all of these things are, are sort of coming together and creating a, a, an interesting situation in which uh, South Indian Orthodox thinkers are trying to come up with 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 their own apologetic strategies. Um, so I, I found that enormously helpful, that idea that, that uh, we're looking at, at multifaceted uh, competition over religion, um, but but always involving politics, the secular, whatever it is that history d- delivers, let's say, to religious communities. Um, and, and really, what is apologetics? Well, it's what it's what religious communities consider worth talking about in an apologetic vein. Um, so that's that's a bit how I uh, how I see the mix. Uh, who, who's involved is is who's being talked to, who's on the stage, so to speak. Um, yeah, fascinating. So that's, that's I think uh, for me the um, the takeaway. Fascinating. Well, Todd and Hugh, thank you so much for your time. We've taken up a lot of your time this afternoon. But it's been really great to speak about this new book, Defending the Faith, Global Histories of Apologetics and Politics in the 20th Century, just published in the Proceedings of the British Academy by Oxford University Press. Before we wind up, Todd and Hugh, could you tell us a little bit about what you're working on at the moment? Hugh, you mentioned the history of sport. Um, what, what shape might that take? When might that be available for uh, the public to see? Well, I'm hoping that I'm near uh, near sort of completion at the moment but uh, um, so it's going it's it starts about 1800 and goes up to 2021 I suppose now I think originally I thought 2020 and um, yeah so I think I hope I you know I, I, I hope it might come out by the end of next year that sounds, that sounds exciting and Todd what about yourself well, uh, you you may you may uh, remember that I've, I've had a very long-standing interest in the history of worldview, uh, and I am working on a conceptual history of worldview from Weltanschauung in 19th century Germany through Lebensbeschreibung in turn of the century Netherlands uh, to worldview, life view in the work of people like James Orr, and then continuing through the 20th century to look at the way that worldview gets wrapped up in politics with, you know, Hitler's worldview party, um, and even in anthropological studies, you know, how people now, also in religious studies, some people are arguing we have to transform religious studies into studies of worldview. Uh, So I'm curious to to take this moment where people are now increasingly talking about worldview and to look back at history and to say, how have apologetics shaped uh, the development of this, and what is the the fact that worldview is is so central to conversations over the past two centuries? You know, what is it? What does it tell us about um, the, the the push and pull of uh, this this key concept? You know, uh, to what extent are are people that speak of Christian theology just living uh, benefiting from all sorts of work done by secularists of an earlier age, and uh, and vice versa? You know, I think there are interesting dialogues that have gone on, uh, unsuspected dialogues uh, between religious and secular actors through the concept of worldview. Fascinating. So that's that's my uh, next project. When it will be done, I don't know. It's going to take a while. I I, I write articles about it here and there. uh, Great. Well, I look forward to seeing both those projects when they're completed 
uh, they sound important uh, and shaping as well. But thanks to you both for coming on today and for sharing your time, uh, Todd and, and Hugh. It's been great to speak about Defending the Faith, Global Histories of Apologetics and Politics in the 20th Century. Thank you for your time and take care. Well, thank you. Thank you, Crawford. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.